So go ahead, if you have a Bible, you can flip to Daniel chapter 4, and you could just go ahead and mark that, hold your place there, and we'll begin reading through this passage together shortly. Well, the date was February 11th, 1990. I was not born yet, but something happened on this day, a date that has gone on to live in sports infamy, especially in the world of professional boxing. You see, on this date, Mike Tyson, the undefeated world heavyweight boxing champion who had won all 37 previous matches of his professional boxing career, was scheduled to fight underdog James Buster Douglas for the world heavyweight championship at the Tokyo Dome in Japan. The odds for the fight were a staggering 42 to 1 in Tyson's favor. And let me just explain what that meant, because I didn't know what that meant. I had to Google it. Let me give you the odds here, okay? This meant that there was a 97.67% chance that Mike Tyson would mop the floor with Buster Douglas, and a very slim 2.33% chance that the match would end in Douglas's favor. And as most of you would have guessed by now, the match did not end up going in Tyson's favor. In fact, not only did James Buster Douglas defeat the undefeatable Iron Mike, but he sent shockwaves across the globe when in the 10th round, Douglas actually succeeded in knocking out the world's greatest heavyweight boxer, claiming a most unexpected and epic victory. Now listen to what Mike Tyson said years after his loss to Douglas. He said, fighting Buster was one of the best things that ever happened to me. He said, I was so stressed out being champ. My hair was falling out. I was stressed out, but I was playing it out like I was a hard guy. Scared to death, a little kid, and you've got the whole world of this sport on your back. You know what Buster did for me and to the world? He made me human. I wasn't an animal savage. It made me human. Tyson's loss caused the world and himself to realize that even the world's greatest eventually fall. Tyson may have felt and believed that he truly was invincible and unstoppable, unbeatable, but his loss to Buster Douglas opened his eyes in the worlds around him to the humbling truth that he was in fact like everyone else, a finite human being. Mike Tyson's persona of invincibility and greatness might remind us of someone from the book of Daniel, which we have been reading about for the past four weeks. And just who might that person be? Yes. Mike Tyson's godlike persona sounds an awful lot like our friend King Nebuchadnezzar. As you might remember remember us discussing in our previous sermons throughout the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar was at that time one of the greatest and most powerful kings to have ever lived in the history of the world. Babylon was an unstoppable force of wealth and power, and all of the surrounding nations feared Babylon and her greatness, led by her extravagant, untouchable, and very proud King Nebuchadnezzar. What we're going to see in our text today, however, is that Nebuchadnezzar will have his own moment of humility enacted by the sovereign hand of God, where he will come to recognize and confess once and for all that All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, including himself, in comparison to the Most High God. And he would declare with his mouth, praise and honor to the Most High God and King, whose dominion alone is an everlasting dominion. 
and whose kingdom alone endures from generation to generation. And what I hope we will see in our text today are the sovereign events that God orchestrated in order to bring this lofty king down to the state of humility and lowliness. And it is my prayer that God will help do the same for us. That we would walk away in all of his majesty, his power, his wisdom, his grace, mercy, and love. And that we would humble ourselves in light of the most high God and king. The title of my message today is Humble Yourself Before the Most High God and King. And so let's go to him now and ask for his grace to help us do just that. Heavenly Father, we uh, just think of the psalm that we read this morning, that you are the most high God, that you are above all thrones and kingdoms of this world, that you rule over all of your creation. And so I ask as we look at your word today that you would humble us, that you would help us realize that we are, we are not our own, that you are creator, and we are in submission to you. And so would you help humble us now as we have a chance to turn to you for your mercy. And Lord, would you draw people to yourself as we look at how you, in, in your grace, humbled Nebuchadnezzar. Would you, in your grace, do that for us here today? We love you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 4 opens in a very unique and unexpected way. Daniel, led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, includes an official proclamation and declaration made by King Nebuchadnezzar himself within his narrative. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Okay, so I'm sure most of you probably didn't expect that opening, right? I mean, is this still the prideful King Nebuchadnezzar that we had just been talking about? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, it is. But what we're going to see as we dive into uh, the rest of this chapter is the firsthand account of the events that transpired in King Nebuchadnezzar's life, which caused him to proclaim such incredible things about the Most High God and King. And so let's continue on in verses 4 through 9, and we will see what God did in his life to bring him to this point of humility. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace, And I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. And so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom, the spirit of the holy, who, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. Okay, so what do we have 
going on here in the text? Well, most commentators believe that around 30 years have passed since chapter 3 and the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, now late into his 43rd year uh, reign as king, has, was having a great time, relaxing, being one of the greatest and most powerful kings the world had ever seen, enjoying the fruits of his many conquests and vast accomplishments over the years. Verse 4 tells us that he was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. And while he is in this state of peace, God once again gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream, just like we saw him do earlier in chapter 2. And just like that first dream that God gave him, this one was also very alarming. And so once again, he calls on all the wisest men to interpret the dream for him. And once again, they all failed him. I mean, this guy should have figured out by now, right? (laughs) That if he wanted to have a dream interpreted, he should probably just go straight to Daniel for all of his interpretation needs. And so in desperation, that's what he does. He turns to Daniel and he asks him to interpret the dream to him. And so let's continue on now and see what this dream was, starting in verse 10, where Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel this. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men." This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. See, Nebuchadnezzar, as a polytheist at this point, he still hadn't quite figured out that Daniel's ability to interpret dreams came not from the spirit of the holy gods, but from the Holy Spirit, from the one true living God of Israel alone. And this is the problem with Nebuchadnezzar. See, Nebuchadnezzar witnessed firsthand the many miraculous works of God, and yet instead of falling on his face in humility before the greatness of the Most High God, he remained unchanged. His pride refused to allow him to bow in humble submission before the Most High God and King Nebuchadnezzar gave credit to the God of Daniel and to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego after witnessing his power, 
But he never humbled himself to declare that their most high God was actually the most high God, sovereign over all creatures in creation, including King Nebuchadnezzar himself. But this isn't just the problem of King Nebuchadnezzar, is it? All of humanity finds themselves within the same fundamental fallen condition. Our refusal to admit and to submit ourselves before the most high God and King is always a direct result of our hardened, sinful condition and heart of pride. At the root of all of our willful disobedience and rebellion against the most high God and King lies a heart of pride that believes that we are self-existing, autonomous creatures. That we are our own gods. There are some of you here today who are living your lives with this current mindset. You have willfully refused to submit your own lives under the rule and reign of the Most High God and King. You might protest in opposition to what I just said and say that your refusal to submit your life to God is not a willful rejection of God, but is solely based on your lack of evidence that He exists. And you might tell yourself you would believe in God and submit yourself under Him if He would just prove Himself to you. If you saw the same miraculous signs that Nebuchadnezzar saw, there would be no way that you would refuse to humble yourself before him like Nebuchadnezzar has done. If this is you, let me just plead with you for a moment. The Bible teaches us that all men everywhere are without excuse. You will not be able to stand before God one day and tell him, you should have done this or that in my life, and then I would have believed in you. Then I would have humbled myself before you. The Bible tells us that God's glory revealed in his creation is enough in and of itself to leave all men without excuse. Our problem is not that God has not revealed himself to us. Our problem is that we, like Nebuchadnezzar, suppress the truth and pridefully and willfully refuse to humble ourselves before him. Listen to how Romans 1 puts it, starting in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's a terrifying and hopeless thought to think about the reality of a life that lives out its own lustful and impure desires after having willfully rejected God and where he then gives that life over to reap the consequences of its own depravity. And some of you might be thinking, I'm sure glad that's not me. And amen, I agree with that. But if you've come to the moment of humbling yourself before the Most High God, do not think for a second that you were uh, better off than those described in Romans 1. And let's remind ourselves of this great truth, church, that apart from God's grace, this was and is all of our spiritual condition. 
100% of the time. Apart from God's grace, we would always reject him as God and king. But here is some good news. God is gracious. And while Romans 3 tells us that no man seeks after God and no man naturally desires to humble himself before God, God still seeks after sinners and draws men to himself in such a way that he cannot be resisted. And this is what we're going to see here in the rest of our text. Don't miss God's grace in Nebuchadnezzar's dream as we continue reading, picking up in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, tell me, let, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field, till seven periods of time passes over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So as we go to unpack this section I want us all to stop and focus first on Daniel's attitude and mindset towards Nebuchadnezzar here. I mean, look at the love and compassion that Daniel has for the king in verse 19. And also in verse 27, Daniel delays interpreting the dream as if the heaviness of the fruition of the dream overwhelms him with grief. He is saddened and tells Nebuchadnezzar, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. In other words, Daniel was saying, Nebuchadnezzar, I love you. I'd hate more than anything for this dream to become a reality for you. And now why is that radical? Because we have to remember that Daniel is in exile in Babylon. And if you haven't noticed yet, Nebuchadnezzar was not a very lovable guy. In fact, just the opposite was true, wasn't it? Nebuchadnezzar was a very wicked and brutal man. And the suffering and hardships that Daniel and his people faced were at the hands of this man. I mean, this is the same guy that threw Daniel's friends into a furnace of fire. Why would Daniel be so compassionate? 
And I think the answer is that Daniel was humble. And instead of rejoicing in the falling of his enemy, he pleaded for him to repent and to turn to the Most High God, who would perhaps show him mercy and save him from the calamity to come. And this is, a heart, this is what a heart that has humbled itself before the Most High God and King looks like. Listen to what Proverbs 24, 17 through 18 says. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Is this how we respond when we hear the news of the downfall and suffering of those we consider our enemies? I mean, is there a person in your life that you just cannot stand or even hate? What is it that you hope God would do to them? Do you anticipate and even hope for the day where God will enact his justice over them? Or do you pray to God that he would grant them repentance and show them mercy? And listen to what Ezekiel 33:11 says. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? God does not delight in the pleasure of the death of the wicked, and neither should we. No, a heart that has been humbled before the Most High God and King will plead with others to turn to him and repent. They will plead with sinners to find forgiveness before, with God before it is too late. And that's exactly what Daniel does in verse 27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to listen to his advice He entreats him to repent and turn from his sinful pride. He tells him, man, if you would just recognize now that my God is the most high God and king over all, and you would humbly submit your life underneath him, demonstrated through your willful obedience to what he commands and desires, then all of this judgment to come might be averted you as you look to the most high God for mercy. And this kind of humble love and compassion that Daniel shows is exactly the kind of humble love and compassion that we, myself included, need for the dying world around us. You see, the truth is that all people everywhere are equally under the same sobering and terrifying reality. What we also should realize is that the reality all men face is much worse than the shadow foretold in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. At some point or another, all mankind will equally have their pride crushed under the weight of the holiness, righteousness, justice, and majesty of the Most High God and King. The question everyone must face is not if, but when are we going to humble ourselves. While we have time to repent and turn to Him for mercy, or when we face His righteous wrath on the day of judgment. We may live like we are untouchable and invincible, the the God of our own lives, but the verity of the matter is that there is only one God and King, creator and sustainer of all things, and we must all submit ourselves under his righteous and gracious rule and reign. So humbly bow now to the King and find joy in his unconditional love and mercy, or reject the King and bow later as you face his righteous justice and wrath. If this is the fate of all mankind, then may God help humble us 
until we have hearts that break at this reality for those who refuse him. And may we, like Daniel, plead to them humbly to uh, humble themselves and turn to the Most High God while his mercy is still available. He is gracious and kind, and he will never refuse anyone who comes to him. You listen to what John 6, 37 says. And whoever comes to me, what does it say, church? I will never cast out. Well, as we continue on in our text, I want to ask you this question. How do you guys think Nebuchadnezzar is going to respond to Daniel's plea for him to repent and turn to the Most High God and King for mercy? Well, let's look at the text and we'll find out. Okay, let's jump back in, starting in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Well, I'm sure most of you guessed it by now. A whole year goes by after Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar that this dream he had was an unstoppable decree from the Most High God. And it would come to fruition unless Nebuchadnezzar repented and turned to God for mercy. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do in response? He goes onto the top, the very top of his palace, looks out at all of Babylon, and then he makes this not-so-humble proclamation. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And now watch what God does next, starting in verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. Can you just imagine this epic scene? Here we have one of the most feared and respected kings of all time standing on top of one of the most majestic kingdoms of the world. And during the middle of his prideful rant, in a split second, at the sound of God Most High's sovereign voice, Nebuchadnezzar has his sanity and his kingdom completely stripped away from him. And he is driven away from his palace to sleep outside with wild animals, where he ensues to eat grass like a cow for seven whole years. I mean, talk about being brought low. God, in a split second, took everything from Nebuchadnezzar the world's most powerful man, and humbled him until he would recognize that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. But why did God do this to Nebuchadnezzar? What was his purpose? Verse 32 tells us the answer where God says, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. 
You see, God had revealed his sovereignty and his greatness over and over before Nebuchadnezzar. And while Nebuchadnezzar recognized the signs and wonders demonstrated by Daniel's God, he never humbled himself before the Most High God and King. But what we must see here is that the calamity that Nebuchadnezzar faced was actually rooted in God's grace towards him. God brought Nebuchadnezzar to a place of lowliness so that Nebuchadnezzar would finally realize once and for all that everything he had had been given to him by the Most High God and King. Nebuchadnezzar bragged about the kingdom which he had built, but the reality was that God had allowed him to succeed in building the great kingdom of Babylon. At any point, God could cause Babylon to collapse or to succeed. And this is what it means for God to be the most high God and king. He is the only sovereign one. All the kings and kingdoms of man are under his dominion and rule. Listen to how scripture attests to this reality. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Isaiah 46.9-10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The last example we'll look at today, uh, attesting to God's sovereignty, actually comes from Nebuchadnezzar's mouth himself in verse 35. But first, let's pick up in verse 34, and we'll see what happened to cause him to make such a powerful declaration. Verse 34 says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Wow. At the end of God's sovereignly appointed time of judgment for Nebuchadnezzar, God graciously restored Nebuchadnezzar's sanity. And for the first time in his life, he humbly looks up to heaven And with his own lips, he blesses the Most High God and King. Look at what he says in verse 35 as we continue on. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Man. Can you believe the words coming out of this one's arrogant conceited king's mouth. This might be one of the greatest attestations of God's sovereignty recorded in the entire Bible, and it comes out of the mouth of none other than the pagan Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. That's truly amazing. And so let's finish our text together as we see what happens to Nebuchadnezzar after God humbled him. Pick up with me in verse 36. It says, at the, time, at the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. So again, I just want to point out God's grace here. 
Not only did he humble Nebuchadnezzar, but God then restored him to his throne and even blessed him to live in more abundance in his final years as king than he had previously had. But now instead of Nebuchadnezzar standing on the rooftop of his palace, bragging of his power and accomplishments, he proclaims in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I love how the ESV study Bible wraps up this chapter where it states this about Nebuchadnezzar. Once brought low by God, he was brought back to the heights and restored to control of his kingdom, demonstrating that the Lord is able to both humble the proud and to exalt the humble. The great and mighty persecutor of Israel, the destroyer of Jerusalem, was humbled by God's grace and brought to confess God's mercy. He blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. In light of our text this morning, I just want to ask us all what is our response to the truths about God that we've seen here today. I mean, can we humbly declare the same things that Nebuchadnezzar did with our own lips? Can we humbly declare uh, if, if God can sovereignly do all of this to humble Nebuchadnezzar, the world's most powerful king, what makes you or I think that he cannot do the same to you or me? Nebuchadnezzar confessed himself, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Have we come to this realization in the same state of humility before the Most High God and King? Or do we in pride pretend that we are the sovereign rulers of our own lives? I mean, what is the evidence that we trust that God is the sovereign King and ruler over all the affairs of the earth? Do we live a life of anxiety Because we're unsure of the future? Or do we find peace knowing that there is a God who holds all things in the palm of his hand, who declares the end from the beginning, and we can trust in him who works all things according to the counsel of his will? And now, I do also recognize that right now, here in this moment, there are some very real struggles and difficulties that members of our church are facing. And I'm not saying that we do not have real moments of worry and fear, but I do want to challenge us with how we respond when we face these real moments of suffering, worry, and fear in our lives. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11 gives us the perfect response. And this is written to Christians in the face of severe suffering and persecution. And look at what Peter says in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And how is it that we humble ourselves? Verse 7 tells us, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him 
be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We may not understand what God is doing in the midst of our trials and suffering, but we can humbly trust him by casting all of our worries on him, trusting and believing that he truly does care for us, like he says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, as Romans 8, 28 tells us. And how is it that we can be so confident that he does actually care for us, that he is working all things together for good, that we can humbly trust God with our lives, despite not knowing exactly what he may be doing in our current season of life? Well, let me simply show you this as we go to close. I want us to quickly look at one other king found within the Bible A king who was sovereignly sent by God the Father to demonstrate his care and love for his creation. Listen to what Colossians 1 tells us about the greatness of this king. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold Together. There was and never will be anyone in comparison to the majesty and authority of this king, not even the great King Nebuchadnezzar. No, this king ruled over all creation, over all other kings and kingdoms. The whole earth and all of the universe was his dominion. And yet, instead of following and submitting to this great king, all of mankind turned their backs on him choosing to willfully rebel and sin against him, separating themselves from this king and his great kingdom and placing themselves under his righteous wrath. And while he was the sovereign creator and ruler over all things, he demonstrated the greatest act of humility this world has ever seen or will ever see by willfully choosing to lay down his own life as a perfect sacrifice in order to save the very enemies who hated him and who had willfully rebelled and sinned against him. This king's name is what, church? Jesus. Listen to what Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says about him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ Jesus, who is fully God, added to himself humanity, becoming both fully God and fully man, not setting aside his divinity, but humbly setting aside his exercise of his divine privilege. And look at what he did in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why should we humble ourselves before the Most High God and King? Because he in love humbled himself and willfully gave himself up as a sacrifice to save undeserving sinners like you and me. 
Christ Jesus stepped down from heaven, took on human flesh, lived the perfect life that we could never live, died a substitutionary death on the cross in our place for our sins, and conquered the wages of sin, namely death, as he resurrected from the grave three days later, so that all who would in humility turn from their sin and turn to him alone for salvation might freely find full forgiveness and eternal life in him. There has never been, and nor will there ever be, a greater or more humble Lord and King. To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognize and admit that we have no control over our existence, over our own lives. That in a split second, our sanity could be taken away from us. Our health could be taken away from us. And Lord, may we humble ourselves in recognition that you are sustainer of all things. And that apart from your grace, we could not breathe another breath. But you are a giver of life. You are a God that created and you love your creation. And so thank you for... Uh, giving us a chance for making a way for us to be reconciled to you. That even though we turned our backs on the most high God and King and rejected you, you were gracious to draw us to yourself. And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ Jesus alone, it is because you were a gracious King and drew us to yourself. And so may we take any credit that we give ourselves and throw it aside And may we look to Jesus and exalt him today for what he has done on our behalf. Lord, may he be glorified as we recognize his humility by willing to step down from his throne in heaven, to take on the humble form of a man, of a servant, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, may we uh, love you more as we think about the greatness of this truth. That even though you are outside of all of time and creation, that you are above all, you're also uh, a God who draws near and wants us to know you. You are a relational and gracious and loving God. So Lord, may we turn to you, may we draw closer to you in response. We love you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.